The Annex Sociology Podcast is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more, visit queenspodcastlab.org. This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Ellen Miser with the University of Hawaii. With me is Na Tan from the City University of New York. And today we have a special guest with us from the University of New Mexico, Assistant Professor of Sociology, Dr. Eli Wilson, who is here to talk with us about a topic that Na and I are very interested in and write about ourselves, which is the culinary industry. Uh, specifically social inequalities and boundary maintenance in restaurants between kitchen staff, which we call the back of the house, and wait staff, which we call the front of the house. Um, And he's also here to talk about his upcoming book on the topic, which will be published by NYU Press titled Front of the House, Back of the House. Um, So Na and I, like I said, we're really curious about uh, the culinary industry as well as the process of turning a dissertation into a book, which you did, Uh, with this upcoming publication. So those are going to be the topics of our conversation today. Uh, This was recorded on September 1st of 2020. Uh, And before we start, I just want to thank you uh, for meeting with us and talking with us. We're really excited to have you. I'm I'm really excited to be here. Thank you to (laughs) and Ellen for this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so our first question that we have for you is just how did you get into uh, doing research about food workers, the culinary culinary industry? Uh, where did the inspiration come from? Gosh, um, I think you know, I think I've had an interest in this stuff for a very, very long time. Um, you know, I've always been around food, and mm-hmm. uh, well, let's see, <laughs> I could probably tell the story a, a few different ways. Um, you know, I, I was somebody who, out of college, uh, I was a sociology major, psychology double major. Um, and, you know, at the time, as a wide-eyed 21-year-old coming out of Wesleyan University in Connecticut, I, uh, I, I thought I was going to be a professional brewer, just like <laughs> okay. many people of my generation, yeah. perhaps, uh, especially white-appearing uh, white men. <laughs> Uh, and I, uh, I thought I wanted to work in a craft brewery and eventually maybe own my own uh, small brewery. And so the, the logical thing to do was to see what kind of opportunities I could get uh, within the restaurant industry or the food and beverage industry. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened at the time, uh, two of my older cousins had just opened a small restaurant in Los Angeles. And I was completely enamored with the idea of working for a restaurant. And, you know, me being having no experience, uh, but, uh, having a newly minted college degree, I was thinking, oh, well, that's great. I'll, I'll just slot right in there in management and, you know, really help him with high end tasks and the running of a business. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I think that my cousins, uh, when I went out to L.A., they, I think they did me a tremendous favor by throwing me at the bottom, at the very bottom of the restaurant um, higher. So when I first got there to the restaurant, um, I was bussing tables. I was running food. I was, um, you know, I was fraternizing with people in, in the back of the house working the, in the dish pit. Uh, I was doing mm-hmm. nothing that had any, anything to do with management and all these higher level, higher skilled tasks that go on within restaurants. Uh, and, and I think that that was my first um, entree into uh, kind of the, the, the world of work that goes on behind the scenes in restaurants. 
Um, and so much, as somebody who was already prior interested in sociology and psychology, so much happens uh, behind the scenes that's of interest to those of us who study this as, as a profession. Um, but mm -hmm. at the time, you know, it wasn't my focus to study this stuff. It was just my, my focus to understand it, to be a part of it, to not fall on my face. Um, and I became interested in a number of, 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 of issues related to what I was seeing. Was the culinary industry your kind of site from the very get-go when you started your PhD? Was that on, on kind of the forefront of your mind or did that develop as you were getting close to dissertation phase? Yeah, you know, looking back, I think I was one of the lucky ones, perhaps one of the lucky ones that came in with uh, knowing what I wanted to study and okay. was able to seamlessly integrate, you know, my, my set of interests, intellectual interests, um, with, you know, some of my experiences, my social experiences, and then ultimately into a research agenda. Um, mm -hmm. so I think I was very lucky in that regard. Um, and so, you know, just to, just to finish up on, on bringing to, you know, into my, into my experience as a graduate student, um, you know, from those early years where I was just in the trenches working five, six days a week in restaurants um, with no real thought uh, to study and write about this, these topics, um, it quickly became apparent to me that I, I, I had questions that when I was, uh, you know, sort of in the weeds, uh, to use an industry, industry term, I just didn't have time to think about. Um, one of the mm -hmm. most interesting questions to me, one of the most puzzling questions to me, uh, again, this is well prior to my graduate school education, was wh why are all of the uh, Mexican and Central American um, primarily immigrants working one type of job, whereas uh, the people who are uh, lighter in skin color um, are more uh, from college, have college degrees, are typically younger, why are they all positioned in other types of roles? And I, of course, given my social characteristics, was very much a part of that latter group. Um, but I, I think what interested me is in the absence of any formal credentials needed to work as a server or, a, in my case, cashier at that first restaurant, um, or in any other position uh, within that type of restaurant, why do we see such segregation of labor? Right. Yeah. And, and in specific, what seems to be preventing people, uh, uh, you know, Latino immigrants, maybe a Mexican immigrant man um, who does speak English, maybe uh, with an accent, but does ultimately speak English. What is preventing that individual from gaining uh, or, or from accessing positions where he could make uh, substantially more money, sometimes twice as much money working a tip front of the house job as a server or bartender. What is preventing that individual from, from ultimately accessing a job that should be in his, his or her, but in, you know, in many cases, it, it's a, it was a his uh, mm -hmm. experiences, um, accessing these positions that seem to be uh, rationally, economically in their interest. So sort of what was going on in this setting? Uh, that yeah. was my early puzzles that I wanted to unpack. And and so as somebody who has read your dissertation, that's one of the puzzles that you you talk about and you solve. Is that the same line of inquiry in your upcoming book, Front of House or Front of the House, Back of the House? You know, I'd say in a nutshell, yes. Although, as um, you know, as as many sociologists well understand, it's always more complicated than it might initially seem. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> You know, I, I remember when I first posed 
questions of that nature that I just described to my early dissertation advisors and some some of my um, kind of mentors as a grad student, um, the, the answers I was getting were sort of rudimentary. It was maybe it boiled down to uh, racism and, and mm. hiring discrimination solely, um, you know, based on maybe just the color of their skin, perhaps. Um, maybe it had to do with formal credentials. Maybe uh, these are jobs that re require a degree of specialized training that they require a college degree. Hence, if you don't have a college degree, you have a kind of, uh, um, a, a, you know, a, a form of labor inequality based on that kind of credential, right? And yeah. so on and so forth with these fairly logical, um, you know, explanations, theories as to why we might ultimately see this um, sort of ethnic division of labor, ethnic and racial division of labor, amongst other things. And, um, but yet, myself as a grad student, as I continued pursuing this work, I realized that the, that the story was so much more complicated than that. Um, you know, on the ground level, be, being in the trenches with these individuals, so to speak, uh, five, six days a week, um, it never seemed as simple as that. I saw, for instance, I saw managers um, and, and, and you know, front of the house workers actively at times actively encourage, um, you know, Latino immigrants to apply for these types of jobs. Um, I saw one particular instance, which I recount in the book, where uh, one, you know, foreign born Mexican uh, man was able to access uh, a job first as a bartender then for a brief short of time as a, uh, a manager um, mm -hmm. and uh, elected in in his own recounting of the story elected voluntarily to go back to uh busing mm -hmm. tables and running food um, mm -hmm. for reasons that were entirely on his own so um you know as many sociologists like i said are aware uh often you know what one's initial theories are insufficient to explain just how much ground level noise uh, and complexity there is going on. And I certainly found that to be the case within, within restaurants. All right. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about your upcoming book since we're on the topic? If you, if you have any more to say. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I, I, I'm really happy to see this book finally come out. It's been years in the making, as are many uh, projects I'm sure we'll talk about later that uh, involve years and years of field work as a graduate student, and then th this being the fruition of that. Um, you know, in this particular book, uh, I spent six years working within three, uh, within three kind of higher-end restaurants within Los Angeles. So I was interested in exploring more than just one because um, I wasn't interested in just telling an idiosyncratic story uh, and sort of blowing that up uh, to be something that was much greater than it actually was. I wanted to see variation based on uh, a different uh, service brand, as I call it, or a different mm -hmm. uh, a way of internal organization within these restaurants, just to see if that played out in some differences um, in terms of the, the race, class, or gender makeup um, of who does what jobs within restaurants. Ultimately, uh, the, the, the sort of the gist of the argument that I'm trying to pitch is that if we really want to understand social inequality in these settings, um, it's not just the role of management sort of um, imparting these uh, forces of inequality top down, but there's something going on between workers. Um, mm. There's, there's um, kind of this dynamism of boundary making and understanding difference um, and ultimately 
you know, kind of making sense of who does what job within restaurants and the logic that accompanies uh, that particular division of labor. So mm -hmm. again, it's a much more complex interplay that involves both managers and the way in which they structure uh, inequality based on their hiring standards, their supervisory methods, uh, but also, also um, some of these ground level sort of bottom up forces uh, of group difference making coming from workers themselves. Um, and also I might add uh, customers too, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, you know, as other scholars have studied, when we're dealing with service environments, we're not just talking about workers and uh, managers. We're also very, in a very important ways, dealing with customers and their standards yeah. and their types of interactions that they impart, especially customers that are more affluent and thus have power in these situations. So, mm -hmm. um, so the, the book really digs into um, all of these meaty forces of social inequality, while I hope providing a little bit of humanity to uh, <laughs> the lived experience um, of, of all of those individuals within, within each of the restaurants uh, that I worked at. Mm -hmm. did, you, did you do ethnography or did you also interviewing, uh, did you also interview all these workers and customers in like, yeah, I do not really know what kind of questions you would ask to, to, to get some answers about social inequalities, right? That's something that I'm really interested in. Sure, yeah. So I would say at the, uh, for this project, the bulk of my data is coming ethnographically, um, is, is really participant observation, kind of the, the classical methods um, of that. And I spent a lot of time in the field, just copious amounts of field notes, um, and you know, record jotted down record of informal conversations, observations, uh, things that I experienced kind of reflexively uh, in the field. Um, but you know, in, in really important ways, I think that interviews, uh, particularly in-depth, open-ended interviews, were uh, a really valuable supplement to that data. Mm -hmm. uh, as you can imagine, there are certain types of uh, things I wanted to know about how workers felt about their job, how they felt about each other, uh, their aspirations uh, that they had for themselves um, in this type of setting that were difficult to glean, um, again, kind of in the trenches, doing this work, often on the clock, um, while trying to ultimately do the task of, of restaurant work and restaurant service. So uh, the interviews for me provided a really important space to, um, to, to meet up with these workers outside of work um, and allow them to elaborate. What are they experiencing, right? What do they want out of their, out of their jobs in restaurants? How did they get this job? Um, how did they feel about their coworkers? Uh, by the end of the project, um, I was, I was actually meeting up with these workers and bouncing some of the, my pet theories about what was going on off of workers themselves and going, hey, does this make sense to you, right? Is this consistent with your experience or, or do I need to go back to the drawing board here? Mm -hmm. So um, again, I, I, at least in the way that I did this ethnographic research, um, the in-depth interview component of it was a really valuable supplement to help me better understand what was going on in this in the setting now you mentioned the idea that customers are also reinforce this kind of um occupational line so to say uh or or they are part of this boundary uh making process how how does it work um in these upscale restaurants and and i um and and because i have 
I have read some work about uh, Yelp reviews, right? Do these customers also go on uh, to the internet and say stuff about workers at these restaurants, especially when they are wealthy customers? Um, I'm really curious about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the issue of Yelp, which um, was always something that anyone who's worked in restaurants, whether it's in management or um, as just frontline employees, you're very aware of these reviews. And it, it's funny when you talk to uh, restaurant workers, restaurant managers, oftentimes they get a little bit defensive about, mm-hmm. about Yelp. Um, I, I, you know, several times when I was interviewing managers and, and owners of these restaurants, uh, they would say, well, I don't really care about what's said at Yelp, on Yelp, you know, very dismissively. Uh, and, and to me, that tended to signal that they cared very much <laughs> about what was being said about their restaurants. Um, and of course, there's, there's, there was other managers who uh, were aware of, of what Yelp meant, um, were, were kind of resigned to the fact that this was a component of their business that they had to monitor. Uh, mm-hmm. They cared about their brands, which I argue in their book, uh, they spent a lot of meticulous time crafting uh, what I call their service brands. These different versions of upscale service uh, offered within these restaurants. Well, then they have to care about what customers are saying. What are they experiencing, um, even in a very problematic medium like Yelp? Um, you know, at, at least from their perspective. Uh, so I think there's a couple of components here in terms of going back to your original question about the influence of customers uh, in the in the setting. Um, first of all, it's important to note that customers bring to to this setting. Uh, all kinds of expectations um, about what the kind of service they're going to receive, uh, expectations about what the person who is going to be providing that service is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Right? So as many other sociologists have written, um, you know, customers very much reinforce these kinds of embodied, um, maybe aesthetic standards um, for workers themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, customers, therefore, function as kind of second managers uh, in a way for these workers that you have to, you know, you, you as a frontline service worker, especially in restaurants, need to be aware of not just uh, the impression you're making on supervisors, but oftentimes uh, the impression you're making on customers. Uh, and, you know, one one example in in um, a restaurant that I refer to as the neighborhood in my in my book um, where you have a situation where customers are, this is a luxury setting, and the customers who come in are of such uh, great affluence. Um, these are individuals that are very oftentimes fabulously wealthy. Uh, I mm-hmm. can't name any names, obviously, but this was uh, a very kind of uh, to-be-seen you know, setting with a very wealthy clientele. And in that particular environment, uh, the relative power between workers and uh, customers um, in terms of the core service interaction is is particularly skewed, right? Mm-hmm. And I had situations uh, even while I was there where workers were fired outright, um, not because of anything that I could tell as somebody working alongside them that they had done wrong, but merely because customers uh, or a particularly wealthy, powerful customer had made a small nudge, maybe on their way out of the restaurant, saying to a manager, hey, you know, that server who took care of me, I I didn't like his or her tone. Mm. It was sometimes that subtle and that, uh, but but that that devastating in terms of what that might mean for a worker. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as we can imagine, you know, the, the way customers perceive 
workers. Um, you know, going back to what I said earlier about their their standards uh, and, and cultural expectations, uh, these are these are done in very much racialized, gendered, and classed ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I to, to the extent that customers expected somebody who was quote unquote well spoken, um, who looked the part. I'm using air quotes here. Look the part, um, you know, to be interacting with them, serving their $50 steak or their $25 uh, glass of Merlot, um, you know, and, and that was part of the experience they wanted. To the extent that those individuals uh, tended to cluster around traits that we would associate with whiteness, with upper classness as a cultural characteristic. Um, perhaps with youth in other settings, that's uh, maybe something I, I don't emphasize as much um, because of the environments that I was doing my research in, but certainly in other restaurants, youth being a big uh, characteristic that customers are looking for and bringing those standards um, you know, with them to dine, but ultimately having those standards result in uh, labor standards in very problematic ways as management picks up on that and makes decisions about who to promote and who to hire. Mm-hmm. Well, while you're talking it, I was thinking about a topic that I'm totally fascinated with, which is restaurants that are like inherently mean to their customers. You know, when when white staff is just so nasty, but you know that their food is so good that you're willing to put up with, you know, the auntie who's going to yell at you for ordering the wrong thing or not giving her enough tip, you know. Absolutely. And it's just, it's, it's that's another thing where customers also... They seem to be no matter what your status is as a customer, whether or not you're, you know, rich or poor or anything in between. Yeah. Like they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I love that you raised that issue because I think that we've all been to restaurants where the waitstaff uh, or the or the bartenders might be kind of surly, and you you put mm-hmm. up with it because you really want to be there for other reasons. But I would also yeah. emphasize that uh, for some restaurants. Um, that kind of surly quality, that standoffishness is actually part of their very service brand. They're well aware that, okay. um, that you know, their staff, um, at least their front of the house staff, is providing this kind of service. And mm-hmm. it's something that they maybe actively encourage. They certainly don't, um, they, they don't chastise. Um, and it's kind of baked into uh, what it means to go to that particular service. Uh, the name, the name of a restaurant that does this is escaping me at the moment, but there is one well-known national. Is it thing. you walk up and it's a order? It's a place where you order at the window and you pick up your food, and they like yell at you, they curse at you, they yeah, tell you you're ugly. Definitely. Yeah, I, there's been <laughs> there's been a few. I've seen a few like news reports and YouTube videos about this place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I don't think there's anything unique about that. And I think a better way, a more sociological way to approach it is to think about the production of distinct service brands. Again, because uh, being a, being a restaurant in today's environment is, is hyper competitive. You're trying to distinguish yeah. yourself. I was thinking when you guys both talked about experiences at restaurants where you were yelled at by the waitstaff. I think my first experience having that was in Germany. The first time I went there as like study abroad program and whatnot. And I staff, I, I waitstaff didn't bring my food out and I was complaining. And then my professor was sitting next to me and trying to use it as a teaching moment immediately. And he was like, look at this. <laughs> In Germany, all the staff are unionized. So they are more willing to argue with customers if you are mm. in the wrong order. And at that point, it didn't stick 
to me so much until like two years later when I actually lived there and I experienced it on a daily basis. And I was like, oh, that actually makes sense. And then the tip system in the US was not in Germany, right? In Germany, if you were, I mean, at the restaurants that I frequented, then the tips were divided equally among the staff. And so it mm. doesn't matter if you're the front um, stage kind of staff or backstage, you are, you're both getting some tip. Sure. Um, are you, are, were you talking about in the US or in Germany? In, in Germany, when oh, I was living there and that what I observed. And so, so they're also more willing to, to argue with customers, so to say. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's just like, and maybe that's a question about um, staff unionization. Do you think mm. that's going to help with these um, inequality issues in the um, uh, culinary industry? Yeah, so the issue of unionization in restaurants is uh, is a super vexing one. I mean, just to, <laughs> to be blunt about it, I, you know, it's... As, as you both are, are well aware, um, the rate of unionization amongst uh, private restaurant uh, workplaces is incredibly low. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is highly problematic, as, as you can imagine, for, for workers. Uh, it means lack of security. It typically means um, all sorts of things that are associated with a non-union workplace um, involving precarious work. Um, you know, you raise the issue of kind of what might the future hold, I think, for unionization, or could this be a solution, a potential solution to some of these issues of inequity? Um, you know, my sense is, well, the short answer would be yes, but I think the way that we get there would is faces a lot of roadblocks mm. to, you know, the, the, this, the rollout of unionization in today's uh, restaurant industry. Um, I'll give you an example, you know, because I, I did, I was involved uh, during this project with um, a, a wonderful organization called Rock. So that's Restaurant Opportunities Center, um, okay. Restaurants Opportunity Center United, so Rock U. And um, Rock at the time, their LA uh, branch, so to speak, uh, that I was kind of attending meetings and I got to know some of the, the heads of that organization, uh, they were facing an issue where most of the individuals who were attending rock meetings and were getting, um, you know, were, were, were getting very outspoken about the need to, to raise awareness about a number of issues related to restaurant work um, and so on and so forth, um, where they were getting some purchase amongst um, kind of immigrant workers. Um, they, mm -hmm. were, they were, of course, struggling to get more undocumented immigrants to kind of make a more public gesture for, for obvious reasons. But there was a, a good deal of their membership was core membership was coming from immigrant workers working in restaurant full time. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I found really interesting is that there were very few sort of white educated workers that I associate with front of the house work uh, who were attending these meetings at rock. Hmm. And, um, and, and so I, I thought about it a little bit more and, and I kept seeing these patterns and I'd go to these meetings and I'd look at who was attending and also very much who was not attending these meetings. And I realized that there's there, I think that I came, you know, my, my working understanding of this is that there may be a cultural disconnect, right? If, if educated, you know, so privileged white young workers, college educated, don't see restaurant work as a quote unquote real job. 
Mm, and they okay. see it as something that's part-time, that they're going to do for a very short bracketed period of their life, uh, that they approach as maybe one of many other activities um, that they are also engaged with. Um, then I guess there's a practical issue. Sort of why take this serious? Why invest in the way that you one would need to invest? Uh, you know, hitting the streets, um, you know, maybe attending uh, protests or, or rallies, raising awareness, uh, risking one's one's job if you're not planning on staying in the industry very long anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there's some 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 really vexing issues related to it. Um, you know, the, the prospects for unionization um, amongst all restaurant workers, um, at least in this higher end sector, um, I, I do think there's there's different issues at play amongst fast food workers. Um, that there may that may mean that there's greater likelihood on that front um, mm-hmm. for unionization, uh, but at least amongst higher end uh, kind of private private restaurant workplaces, um, I think that there are, are certainly a number of challenges. Yeah, I, I mean, in in my own research, I've talked to uh, chefs and restaurant owners who about things like tip pooling and service fees and stuff like that to not really unionize, but to kind of equalize the difference in pay between front and back of house. And there, like you said, there are so many roadblocks that are even like legal roadblocks where tip pooling can be construed as um, wage theft under certain state laws. Like I think New York is one of those uh, states that actually will can prosecute a restaurant owner for wage theft if they engage in tip pooling. Um, so they, so it has to be totally organized by the staff themselves. Mm-hmm. But if, like you said, staff are not thinking of these jobs as um, long-term jobs and it's a very transient industry to begin with, then who's there who's really going to be willing to organize all of that and and convince people to tip pool their tips and all of these things? So like you said, I think that that... Um, the transient nature really, really goes, works against people yeah, uh, in terms of equalizing things. You're absolutely right about that. And, you know, something I'll, I, I would add um, is, you know, I, I write in my book about uh, the fact that, that this deep irony, this kind of cruel irony that oftentimes some of the workers that are most committed to making a career in restaurants Mm-hmm. Um, working full time, developing their skills, um, and being committed either to uh, the leadership of that restaurant or the restaurant itself are the ones that are least able to access the better positions. Um, mm. And in favor, yeah. and, and so in specifically, I'm talking about uh, many of the immigrant Latino workers, both who are operating in what I call support jobs, or otherwise known as uh, busing and food running, um, mm-hmm. or in in the cook, uh, sorry, in the kitchen, working as line cooks and um, not basically non-chef positions uh, within within the kitchen. Um, some of these individuals uh, that I talk to are absolutely devoted to, uh, to, to remaining in the industry and, and, and this is where they wanna be. They've, they've done it for decades. They've done it uh, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Sometimes mm-hmm. they've invested their own money in their, in, in their equipment, such as knives and other, um, other kitchen you know, uh, tools and equipment. Um, and yet they're, they're sometimes the ones that are least likely uh, for reasons that I talked about earlier to be able to access jobs that can give them uh, better wages um, and maybe more visible positions, um, you know, just and so on and so forth. So, yeah. 
No, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see people navigate it. And I think especially um, with the pandemic, which is something that I wanted to ask you about with your, your field sites, um, it's going to be interesting to see how the restaurant industry maybe revamps itself after having this giant kind of devastating lull in, in business and activity. So um, I was wondering, have you been following up with your study subjects during the pandemic or with your field sites? Um, like you mentioned, the neighborhood match. Is it terroir? Ter- terroir. terroir? Yeah. Yeah. Have you kept up with them? How is the pandemic affecting them? And do you also see if you have been a divide between front and back of house and in the treatment of employees during this time period? Sure. You know, so I I wrote earlier back in March when the pandemic really started to kind of accelerate and the effects were starting to grow, grow wider and wider. Um, You know, the restaurant industry was one of the worst hit early on. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now months in, I I suppose it almost seems like, uh, you know, Threat, threading hairs to say who's been hit worse. Uh, there's been such widespread, you know, devastation due to, due to the pandemic. But certainly back in March, uh, it was very clear that those types of jobs that relied on person-to-person contact, um, many service jobs, restaurants in particular, were were tremendously impacted um, mm-hmm. in the form of closures and shutdowns that you know, had a kind of indefinite timetable. And, you know, one, one thing I, I was emphasizing in, in a piece I wrote back in March is that um, nonetheless, the effects within restaurants were felt in very unequal ways. Um, and a, a couple examples. Um, one would be, you know, certain workers were able to be laid off and access unemployment, and and you know, as you know, there was there was an extra pot of money coming from the government to support unemployed workers, um, but those benefits, uh, federal benefits, were not being extended to undocumented workers, mm-hmm. uh, which we know are a big component of the restaurant industry, particularly in LA um, and other major cities in this country. And so we were seeing this uh, really the rug pulled out from underneath. Um, workers who are already, in many ways, the most vulnerable population within restaurants. Um, and so, you know, that was a population that was starting to fall back on uh, already vulnerable social networks out of desperation um, and with very little recourse in, in a very scary way. And I think there were some advocacy groups um, in LA that were trying to draw attention um, to their plight. That, that is the mm-hmm. plight of undocumented restaurant workers um, in particular. Uh, you know, in a very different way. I, I also was observing, and this was from some conversations I had with uh, some of the individuals who were in my study in the front of the house. I was also observing that uh, front of the house workers were being hit very badly. They were not in as socially vulnerable a position, um, as I mentioned earlier, because they tended to be more educated, um, white, class privilege, those sorts Mm -hmm. of things. But in terms of their, uh, the status of their jobs, these were the kinds of jobs that were absolutely obliterated. That is Mm -hmm. house jobs. So customer facing jobs within restaurants and and food and eating establishments. These are the kind of jobs that were absolutely obliterated, right? So that is to say, uh, when more restaurants move to a takeout model, for instance, or DoorDash and that kind of gig economy, food service, Mm -hmm. um, none of that involves front of the house workers. 
You might have a limited contingent of cooks that retain employment, managers that retain employment, but certainly not uh, frontline servers, bartenders, hosts, and some other positions, cashiers. Uh, and so th those, this was uh, what amounted to be an employment Armageddon for those individuals. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say I, I, I have not in the months since sort of followed up and keep, uh, kept tabs as to uh, sort of where are they now? I, I wish I mm -hmm. had, um, but I think it's a very important question, um, you know, as those jobs are starting to come back, um, but, uh, you know, also may not have the same level of tips. They may not mean the same thing. Ours could be different. Um, mm -hmm. There's a number of other changes that I'd imagine uh, have taken place. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm curious. I'm very curious what's going to happen with the whole industry after, you know, maybe over the next three four months when this continues to to linger and they try and figure out how to reshape their businesses. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one last thing I'll add to, to talk of you know, speaking of the pandemic, since it's such a, I mean, it, it's on everybody's mind within the restaurant industry as well as a number of other industries. Um, I would also add that, you know, in terms of the restaurants that are surviving and possibly even thriving in this moment, because there are some, they tend mm -hmm. to be restaurants on the lower end of the, of this, of the spectrum, fast food, mm -hmm. quick service, um, some casual dining setups that have a nice outdoor space um, where they can do, continue to do business. Uh, the, the part of this, uh, the sector within the restaurant industry that is um, still really struggling is the very sector I studied. Um, we're talking about full service, higher end um, mm -hmm. restaurants. Uh, yeah. Restaurants that prize themselves, train their staff, built their brands on customer hospitality and providing uh, a really curated experience, both on the plate, in the drink, and also in terms of um, what you're gonna experience in terms of that person-person uh, -person hospitality. Uh, and I, you know, the, the devastation is apparent. Every, every city that I know of in this country is seeing massive closures amongst that sector. Some of the uh, more prominent restaurants in the city are, are really, really struggling this time. Okay, all right. So um, we're gonna kind of switch gears here and talk to you about the process of turning a dissertation into a book. So um, like I mentioned, Serving Across the Divide, that was your dissertation. You defended that in 2017. And you are coming out with a book in a few months, so 2020. Mm -hmm. So three years. In my mind, that's a very fast turnaround because it takes me, you know, four weeks to write an abstract for something. <laughs> so um, can you uh, talk a little bit about um, kind of, turning that dissertation into a, into a book proposal, I'm assuming, and then into a manuscript. Walk us through that process. Sure. Yeah, I, hmm, I'm trying to think of, <laughs> you know, where to start. And I, I haven't given this a ton of thought, but I certainly have a lot of ex experience you know, in terms of going through this process very recently. I think one of the best things that certainly something that helped me, but I also think it's more generalizable advice is the sooner as a graduate student um, working on your dissertation, you, you can think about how do you want, how do you want this dissertation to sound like a book? Mm, right. Okay. So that might involve simple steps. Uh, like what are some books that you really love to read and that you would ultimately want your own product, your own uh, dissertation turned book to sound like, to feel like, 
um, to evoke certain kinds of emotions, intellectual or, or, or otherwise. I mean, I think that that's really important to consider as early as possible, um, because I think it shapes the way that you approach the writing process. Um, it approach it approaches, uh, you know, the, the kind of ease and accessibility that you are trying to achieve for a very particular audience. Um, I knew early on that a book was my goal. Mm -hmm. I knew as I was writing my dissertation that I, I wanted this to be a book and I wanted this book to be read not only by uh, specialized sociologists that work in race and inequality, but also by a general um, you know, educated audience, um, mm -hmm. call it like a New Yorker audience. That was something told to me early on in my career. <laughs> um, and with that in mind, I think that it informed my decisions on how to write that dissertation. Um, and so, you know, I think I got a little bit lucky in the sense that I was told that advice. And not only was I told that advice, but that the, uh, the, the, the content, there was such continuity, you know, even from going in, knowing I was going to write about restaurants, understanding early on I was going to turn this into a book. And then understanding that, you know, once I passed the dissertation phase of my graduate career, um, I was, you know, all, all, all eyes focused on, on turning this into a book and, and had a lot of support um, from mm -hmm. people in that process. So I do think that a little bit of luck came in there. And, and I certainly, you know, for those of you who are still graduate students, um, you know, hearing this, I, I wouldn't get too discouraged if your own trajectory involves uh, maybe a, a few false starts and, um, you know, kind of simultaneous sort of one foot forward, two, two steps back kind of thing. I think that's more uh, normal. And I acknowledge that, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I had some, I had some good luck on my side in, in having mm -hmm. everything straight. So did, can I ask how long it took um, for you to shop around a book proposal until you got a, a set deal or was that relatively quick? I'm assuming because you said you were lucky or? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I definitely think, I think the earlier you can get started on thinking about that uh, book prospectus um, mm -hmm. or getting a certain press, once again, I would encourage you to think about where are the books that you like to read, academic books that you like to read, where are they coming out from? Mm -hmm. And start to recognize some of those presses, right? Get to know, get to know some of those names. Um, I say that because for me, that was a very foreign world. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't, I was not used to opening the first page of a book and looking at that imprint. Right? These are things that, as a graduate student, it, it certainly didn't occur to me to do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, getting to know, getting having conversations about, well, you know, who are the editors of of which press, right? And and starting to familiarize with that world. Um, so I think there's certainly a learning curve there, uh, but I would, I would, you know, it's, uh, I would encourage any graduate student interested in going through that, pro, uh, that, that, that arc from, you know, dissertation to book, um, get started thinking about that prospectus, challenge yourself to, um, you know, give an elevator pitch for what this book might sound like. Um, mm -hmm try out a few rough drafts of how, how would I convey why this book is important and urgent and valuable right now, right? And mm -hmm. I got two paragraphs to convey that in say a book perspectives or mm -hmm. whatnot. Um, I, I think it's a really valuable intellectual activity. Um, I think that it sometimes, 
some of how you learn to think about your project can, can filter back into better thinking about the dissertation itself and some of the core arguments you're trying to make. Uh, and, and to your question about timeline, you know, I, I, if I remember, things are getting a little bit fuzzy here, <laughs> but if I remember right, I, once I defended my dissertation, uh, the next words after congratulations out of my advisor's mouth were, okay, now let's, let's get to work turning this into a book. Mm, okay. Let, let's get you started on, on writing the prospectus. Let's, let's start making some of those edits that were you know, coming from the committee. Everything, of course, geared towards thinking about it like a book product. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, when you're thinking about uh, turning your, your dissertation into a book, how, I, I guess, you know, because when you look at uh, any type of sociological literature that is narrative driven, which I'm assuming yours is going to be because your dissertation had narratives throughout, um, usually you'll see the methods chapter pushed into an appendix. You have things moved around um, to make it more kind of reader friendly to that New Yorker audience that you're that you're talking about. So, what were some tactics that that you used to make the book more of a book versus? Yeah. Oh boy. I, I wonder if I'm going to get myself in trouble here because I, I do acknowledge <laughs> there are different ways to do this. Um, okay. and so, you know. It, if I'm going to have a cop-out answer, which I, which I'm not, but a cop-out answer would be, well, talk to your advisor, okay. <laughs> but I'll see if I can go a step further beyond that. Um, I think that for me, the question related to methods that I kept asking myself was, does this detail about my methods that I use to collect this data, does this detail does the reader need to know this detail in order to better mm -hmm. understand the story? Mm -hmm. and, and I emphasize story, not, you know, the idiosyncrasies of data collection or, you know, some technique, yeah. I mean the story. And if the answer is yes, I would argue, keep it in the narrative, um, you know, allow, allow the, 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 the detail about your methods to kind of flow organically um, because as we all know, as sociologists, many times the decisions you make methodologically uh, matter for the kind of theory that you're going to be working with. They certainly matter for the data that you'll be, um, in this case, expressing in that, in, for the rest of the book. So um, I'm actually not a fan at the, at the moment. This may change, but I'm not currently a fan of um, kind of taking any methodological detail and sort of deleting it from the main narrative and just sort of cordoning it off on page 250, okay. uh, full well knowing that uh, most people who will pick up your book will never read a page of that methodology. Mm -hmm. I understand why people do that. And I certainly don't want to ignore that there are very real methodological struggles that, um, you know, that all of us, particularly ethnographers, have to go through issues of reflexivity, um, uh, issues of you know, positionality, issues of um, you know how how you chose field sites and whatnot. These are all really important conversations. Um, but in terms of the flow of of the book and the story you're trying to tell, I think it's still really really valuable to ask yourself: Does the reader really need to know this in order to better understand, to move forward their own understanding of the narrative um, and the argument of the book? Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a good. Um... 
I, that's very helpful when I'm thinking about things. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you have any more questions about dissertation to book? Nah, that's that's very <laughs> good. Yeah, I actually I do. I was curious why you chose NYU. Now I kind of see why <laughs> with the the New York uh, audience. <laughs> perfect place. Well, yeah. No. Well, so so the issue of which press. Um, you know, once again, going back to the, the there is a good deal of variation here. Um, I do think that in ideal terms, you want to be driven by which, again, which presses seem to be putting out books that you love reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just the content, but that's the style too. You know, again, these are things that I didn't really think about till I was kind of engaged in this process, but I would probably think the earlier you can keep in mind, um, does this book seem to flow right? Does it? Does it? Does the story unfold in a way that's really appealing to me, or is it very uh, choppy and uh, maybe it's too narrative driven, and you want a little bit more of that um, sort of citation heft and 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 rich theory, um, you know, on on the page and not in endnotes. Those are all decisions that um, every author has to make, and certain presses have a house style in how they deal with that. Um, and so I'm, I'm of the belief that once you get past that and you have sort of a wish list of like, these are presses that I would love to see my book come out, come out with, um, then it becomes a bit of the shopping around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, without naming names, I, 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 you know, I had a couple presses that I targeted. Um, one, for one reason or another, didn't go all that, all that well. Um, and I say that only to say that sometimes your top choice or, or one of your top choices is not going to ultimately pan out. Um, mm-hmm. I know that some, you know, some graduate students might have received the advice of, you know, I'll be very careful about uh, simultaneous submissions, right? In other words, mm-hmm. submitting to one press and then having two or three more sort of also being submitted. Um, I, I adopt a bit more of a pragmatic approach. I don't think, I think that presses understand the need to edge your bets and sort of play, play the field in, in a basic, you know, market sense. Um, I do think that maybe a little bit of being upfront goes a long way. So in other words, maybe telling the press, hey, um, I, I know I reached out to you first. I'd love to publish with your press. Uh, would you mind, um, you know, in, would you mind if I also submit this um, or am I allowed to also submit this to a couple other presses just in case? Mm-hmm. Um, from my experience, because I, I, those are words that are almost verbatim stuff that I sent out via email, um, presses are, are not generally offended by that. I think they view this as just par for the course. This is, this is business mm-hmm. as business. Um, so I, I would suggest submitting to maybe two, possibly three presses, just to keep your options open and to make sure that you're not put in a, a, a you know, backed in the corner by, by trying to all eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you, you know, you said that you had looked at, at some of the books that you enjoyed yourself and, and saw press names. Can, can I ask you what, what books that you enjoy that led you to NYU press? Mm, yeah. If, if, well, if they're at top of the mind, I mean, it's yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, so I'll, I'll name a couple. I mean, I think early on, uh, early on in my career, you know, the kind of books that I was, I was reading and really enjoying to this day, I really enjoy. Um, I love reading books. Well, for obvious reasons, I love Gary Allen Fine's Kitchens. Mm, yes. Um, 
And I love, you know, uh, so I love the flow of that, but I love how he balanced that, um, that ground level complexity of life in the kitchen with uh, a lot of engagement with theory mm-hmm. in, in really, really interesting ways. I, it's still a brilliant book in my mind. Um, you know, Rachel Sherman's Class Acts was a, was a big inspiration. I love the way that flow, uh, that mm-hmm. flowed. Also, I think similar in um, the kind of rig- theoretical rigor um, kind of introduced very upfront and then unpacked through this wonderful ethnographic detail. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, within, within NYU Press, uh, I've been really, really impressed with, uh, um, uh, with the Latina, Latino series um, mm-hmm. edited by uh, Pierrette Hontanius-Latello and Victor Rios. And Victor Rios's book um, is absolutely fantastic. And I mm-hmm. think what really drew me to NYU Press, um, and I'm thinking specifically about Victor's book, uh, is just how much the narrative, that compelling story, you know, live real life story pushes the narrative forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you're introduced a little bit after, you, you're already engrossed, you know, as a reader, you're already flipping the pages. And then you're, you, then you're seeing the sociological analysis come out. Then you're seeing that connect him, uh, the author, of course, connecting up to the theory. And mm-hmm. me, that was really inspirational. To, to read just just the flow of that of that book so you know again different house styles um in different presses uh, there are a number of other presses i could name with with fantastic products <laughs> as well um like we mentioned you have an upcoming book called front of the house back of the house can you give us a little bit more information about when it's coming out as well as any social media people can come and um contact you through absolutely yeah so i the my upcoming book, first book, which I'm very excited about, is is coming out through NYU Press. It'll be out this December in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, I am well underway starting a new project in which I'm I'm I've turned my attention on the uh, on the craft beer industry, which exploding all over the country. <laughs> and um, I'm particularly interested in in looking at uh, labor dynamics and kind of um, cultural discourses that uh, are, you know, are within that, with that industry. So um, I also have a Instagram account that's associated with research that I'm doing um, with a collaborator named uh, Dr. Asa Stone, um, also from um, a scholar in New Mexico. And that Instagram is beer and society. Mm-hmm. Beer and society, one word. And you can follow uh, the latest uh, research on um the craft beer industry there. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thanks again, Dr. Wilson, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. So for more information about Dr. Wilson and his book, you can go to the Annex's website, which is sociocast.org slash Annex. You can also find us on Twitter, which is at SochAnnex, that's at S-O-C Annex. And we're also on Facebook, which you can find us if you search The Annex Sociology Podcast. Thanks to um, Joe Cohen for letting Na and I host this episode, to the producer, Elizabeth Moreno, and to the musical creator, Lena Orsa. On behalf of both me and Na and the team here at The Annex, um, thank you, Dr. Wilson, for being on the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening. Have a great day.